Good morning again. <laughs> I was speaking to Brother Kess just a few minutes ago, explaining to him, giving him the, the title of my topic, and uh, he asked me how many Sundays do I need. <laughs> so hopefully, Lord willing, I'll be able to complete this out in one, one Sunday. Um, but before we do, can we just open the word of prayer? Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for your goodness to us. Lord, we do thank you that, again, we have this liberty to learn more about you. Lord, I pray that you would prepare our hearts, Lord. You prepare me as well, Lord, and allow me to present this message, Lord, and pray that your spirit would work through me, Lord. And that the hearts out there, everyone listening to this message, may be yielded to you and either come to salvation or grow through this message, Lord. Lord, please hide me behind your cross that I don't be a part of this, but that you would work through me. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Why would Kess say that it would take uh, a number of Sundays <laughs> to go through this topic? Well, this topic is called, my title is, How to Live a Fulfilled and Complete Life. I suppose the title of this message could also be, How to Live a Victorious Christian Life, or maybe How to Live a Happy Life, if you're not saved. Or how to live a successful life. I really didn't want to use the last title, How to Live a Successful Life, because many of the charismatic or money-preaching churches would equate wealth to and money to success. This is not necessarily the case. There are many cases of people with vast amounts of money, vast amounts of possessions, who appear to be successful to the world, but are really unhappy and feel empty and having no real purpose in life. Some of them take the extreme measures of committing suicide. With, with today's message, what I'd like to do is to give you some guidelines and some pointers on how to live that happy, fulfilled and complete life. Now, for me to do this um, effectively, we really need to understand what, is, what makes up a person. So every single man, woman, here, and child, what makes up that person? And when you look at, uh, at, at um, through literature and different things like that, and philosophers, there are many terms that people use to describe a person. One of them might be the body or the soul, or the self, or even the spirit. There are other terms as well that can be used, but these are the main ones that come up. Now, I did a bit of research to try and understand what these terms or these names mean to different religions, to see if there's any consistency in the religions, and if maybe that some of the terms might mean the same thing. For instance, is there a difference between the soul and the spirit? I, I looked at some of the Mohammedans' websites. The Islamic Studies website says, and I quote, the majority of Islamic scholars agree that naf, okay, excuse my pronunciation, or soul, and ru, again my pronunciation, spirit, are two names for one and the same thing. The Islam Today uh, website explains the difference between soul and spirit as follows. We can ascertain 
that the word naf is more general in meaning than the word ru, since the word naf can be used to refer to the human entity as a body and a soul, or to the soul alone, while the word ru is restricted in meaning to the divine infusion of life. Islam 101 uh, website talks about the dualism of the spirit and matter and the conflict between the body and the soul. He talks about the body being the way to get spiritual development. I quote, this is, The body is not a prison for the soul. It is a workshop or a factory. And if the soul is to, to, to uh, grow and develop, it is only through this workshop. So spiritual development should not take the form of man turning away from his workshop and retreating into a corner. Rather, man should live and work in it and give the best account of himself that he can. It is the nature of an examination for him. Every aspect and sphere of life is, as it were, a question paper. The home, the family, the neighborhood, the society, the marketplace, the office, the factory, the school, the law courts, the police station, the parliament, the peace conference, and the battlefield. All represents question papers which a man has been called to answer. If he leads most, most of the answer book blank, he's bound to fail. The examination. Success and development are only possible if man devotes his whole life to this examination and attempts to answer all the question papers he can. So, based on this research I found, to summarize these websites, According to Muhammad, man consists of two parts, a body and a soul. The only way to spiritual development and to have a happy life is to live and work as best as you can with your body in all areas of your life, including the battlefield. Because if you don't fill that paper in, how are you going to succeed? And you've got to do this as if it's an exam, that you have to pass something. Well, I looked at uh, another major religion in the world, which is Buddhism. According to Buddha.net website, a person, a person also consists of two parts, a body and a soul. The Buddhists have the opposite view of what the Mohammedans have on the progression and happiness of life. Okay, I quote... No, uh, now human beings are constantly giving off physical and spiritual forces in all directions. In physics, we learn that no energy is ever lost, only that it changes form. This is com the common law of the conservation of energy. Similarly, uh, spiritual and mental actions is never lost. It is transformed, thus karma is the law of the conservation of moral energy. By actions, thoughts, and words, man is releasing spiritual energy to the universe. And he is 
in turn affected by the influences coming in his direction. Man is therefore the sender and the receiver of all these influences. The entire circumstances um, surrounding him is his karma. What we are then is entirely dependent on what we think. Therefore, the nobility of man's character is dependent on his good thoughts, actions and words. At the same time, if he embraces degrading thoughts, those thoughts invariably influence him to negative words and actions. So according to this website, it is through your thoughts that happiness and fulfillment arises. This is probably why they meditate and try to clear their minds, emptying the minds of all things, trying uh, all things, trying through their thoughts to achieve the nobility of man's character. Another world major religion, the Hindus. The Hindus believe, well, some of them, that a person consists of a body and a soul or inner self. They also believe in a spirit. But the spirit is unchanging, eternal, conscious, and is present in all things, all living things. For instance, trees, flowers, animals, and humans, etc. But it is not in inert matter, for instance, the chair. Now, from our reading of the website, the soul and spirit appear also to be the same thing in some of uh, uh, the websites. For instance, I quote from Hindu uh, website. Uh, According to Hinduism, the soul exists in all beings, including plants and animals. Even the mineral world is not devoid of the supreme spirit. He exists in all and all exists in him. The whole universe is thus very sacred, pervaded by the universal self. The beings as well as the elements are in a continuous state of evolution. And the soul that resides in them moves through the cycle of births and deaths until they attain union with the supreme soul. We can see that they're mixing the spirit and soul together and they, they'll switch easily from one, one to the other. So what, what we've seen is, I've looked at trying to get some ideas of what the major religions of the world are saying, of what, what a human being consists of. And from the major religions, you can see that, and also probably from man's view, uh, the uh, human, humanistic view, is that man consists of two parts, basically the, the soul or spirit combined, and the body. So, what does the Bible say? What is the Christian point of view of the composition of man? And this is really important, and um, you may wonder why I'm, I'm going through so much detail on all this. It's really, really important if you want to live a, a complete and fulfilled life to understand what you're made up of. It's only when you understand that, then you can start progressing forward. Okay, the Bible, the Bible tells us that man is a tr- trinity consisting of three parts. The body, the soul, and the spirit. Now, this is in contrast to the major religions and, 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 and educated people's thoughts of the world. So, how do we get this idea that man is a trinity or a tripartite being? 
Let's turn to our first scripture for today, which is Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. Okay, and we're going to read from, I'll just read one verse over here, and that'll be verse uh, 26. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, and it says, And God said, Let us, sorry, I'll wait for it. Everyone's there? Okay. Um, And God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. God said, Let us make man in our image. And our likeness. Here, you see that God is talking in the plural term. He's talking about us and our image. God is a trinity. And he's made and made man in that image. You may ask, how do we know that God is a trinity? Because we do have these questions. Turn to 2 Corinthians. Chapter 13. Two Corinthians chapter thirteen. Okay, and it says verse fourteen. It says, "This is the end of Second Corinthians, and uh, we, we 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 read the final notes of it." And it says here, "The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all." Amen. Okay. So we've got there the Lord Jesus Christ, we've got God, and we've got the Holy Spirit mentioned there. Go back to Matthew, chapter 28, the end of Matthew, and it's the Great Commission to all Christians. Matthew 28, and verse 19. Again here, we'll see that the Trinity is mentioned here. It says here, in Matthew 28, verses 19, it says, Go ye therefore, and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. The three persons of God, the Godhead, a trinity. From these two passages, we can clearly see the trinity of God, consisting of God the Father, God the Son, who is Jesus Christ, and God the Holy Spirit. Three persons in one God. So, how do we know that Man is a trinity consisting of three parts. We talked about being uh, the body, the soul, and the spirit. Turn to 1 Thessalonians. You're going to have to warm your fingers up. (laughs) We're going to do a lot of uh, flipping. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And we're going to look at verse 23. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, 23. Okay, and it says here, And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
There you can see that they're talking about the whole spirit, the whole, the soul, and the body. Three parts. Just turn back, go forward onto Hebrews. We're going to look at Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. And we look at verse 12. And it says here, For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of the soul and spirit and of the joints and marrows, and a discern of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Here again, we see it, it makes a very clear distinction from these two verses that man consists of three parts. The body, the soul, and the spirit. And we see from Hebrews that the separation of the soul and the spirit is, is very difficult. It's hard to discern whether there's a separation. But there is a definite, clear dis def um, description that there are separate parts. The, the, the soul and the spirit are two very different parts of the human being. Now, because of this difficulty to separate them, maybe that's why some of the religions of the world try to combine it as one. A very important thing I want to point out in, 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 in the King James Bible, for instance, is that whenever the Bible has the word spirit in capital letters, it refers to the Holy Spirit. But if it's in small letters, it could re refer to a number of things. Okay? It could be human spirit, it could be spirit of demons and all those things. It could be many things. But when it shows you the capital S, it's a Holy Spirit involved. The tripartite nature of man has been illustrated by many different people. And um, the one I've, I've found, which is really makes it very clear to me um, on how, how to describe this, is by Dr. Clarence Larkin from Rightly Dividing the Word. Uh, I think it's on page 86. And, and what it does, it describes man as, as having three concentric circles. Um, the outer circle stands for the body, which we have, of man. The middle circle stands for the soul. And the inner circle stands for the spirit of man. Now, I'm just going to quote this um, from his book. Um, and, and, and I'll give you a better understanding of what defines the body, the soul, and the spirit. In the outer circle, the body is shown as touching the material world through the five senses of sight, smell, hearing, taste, and touch. The gates of the soul are imagination, conscience, memory, reason, and affections. The spirit receives impressions of the outward and the material things through the soul. The spiritual fa uh, facilities of, of, of the spirit are faith, hope, reverence, prayer, and worship. In his unfallen state, the spirit of man was illuminated from heaven. But when the human race fell in Adam, sin closed the window of the spirit, pulling down the curtain of the chambers of the spirit. Uh, and uh, huh? pulling down the curtains. And the chamber of the spirit uh, became a death chamber and remained so in every unregenerated heart until the life and light giving power of the Holy Spirit, spirit floods the chamber with the life and light 
giving power of the new life in Christ Jesus. We see then why the natural man cannot understand them until his spiritual nature has been renewed. Now, Paul describes the three-part nature of man. Um, uh, he uses different terms. So if we just turn to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And we're just going to read verses 1 to 3. It says here, It says, And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with meat, for hitherto ye were not able to bear it, neither yet now are ye able, for ye are yet carnal. For whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are ye not carnal and walk as men? If you look at this um, section here, we can see that in the first section, we look at the verses. Uh, we see that um, he's talking about the three parts of man. He talks about the carnal nature, which is the flesh. He talks about the, um, where are we? Uh, the spiritual part, which is in verse 1. And then he also talks about the... Um, oh, where is it? Okay. Uh, just turn back. Uh, turn forward to uh, where are we? Uh, turn back to uh, just you. You're still on the same page. Two Corinthians chapter fourteen. Uh, two Corinthians. One Corinthians two verse fourteen. Just a few pages. A few verses before. The natural man receiveth not the things of the spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. So there, he's also talking about the spirit of man, because it is spiritually discerned. You have to have it through the Spirit, because God's Word cannot be understood by your flesh, nor can it be understood by your soul, but only through your Spirit. So those are the three parts. So he talks about the Spirit of man, he talks about the, the natural man, and he talks about the, um, uh, the carnal man, uh, the spiritual man, and he talks about the natural man. So the carnal man is your flesh, the natural man is your soul, and your um, spiritual man is the Spirit. So how do we discern how do we discern the difference between our soul and our spirit? Okay. Now we're here in 1 Corinthians anyway, so chapter 2. So look at verse 9 to 12. It says, But it is written, I have not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yea, the deep things of God. For what man knoweth the things of man, save the Spirit of man which is in him? Even so, the things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. Now, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God that we might know the things that are freely given unto us. Here we see that the spirit of man, there's a spirit of man, there's a spirit of the world. So to every unsaved person, they can only rely on the spirit of man or the spirit of this world. 
They cannot rely on the Spirit of God. An unsaved person may depend on their own spirit, for instance, to become a successful scientist, or maybe a successful doctor, or maybe a successful sportsman. By their own spirit and their will, they want to do that, they can get there and they can achieve it. But the human spirit may be successful in this world and things around them, but they are totally limited to the things of man or to the things of this world. They are dead and dormant to the Spirit of God. They are unable to understand the things of God. Just, turn, uh, just look back up a little bit further to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. It says here, and this is why it says this verse, it says here, 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it's the power of God. An unsaved person who has not been regenerated, whose spirit is still the spirit of man and the spirit of this world, cannot understand this. They see this as foolishness, what we're saying. The, 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 the Christ on the cross, it's foolishness to them. So that gives you an idea of what the spirit is. But what about the soul? Okay, let's go back to Genesis. Genesis chapter 2. Let's see if we can get a little bit more light on, on, on the soul. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7. It says, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Man is a living soul. As explained above, the soul, previously, the soul is where our imaginations, our conscience, our memory, reasons and affections take place. The soul is the place where all our fleshly lusts, desires and appetites take place as well. Whereas the Holy Spirit starts working on the spirit of man, the soul is where the devil works. Satan works on the soul all the time. And this is his playground. This is where he appeals to our affections and our emotions that, that we have. Satan knows that the natural man is led by his soul. And, and he dominates and controls all natural men this way. Now, I've laid down some of the groundwork on the nature of the human being. And let me see if I can now answer, try and answer how to live a fulfilled and complete life. The first thing to note is that if you are only dealing with two parts of a person, namely the body and the soul, well, you could never be complete. You could never be fulfilled because you're only dealing with two-thirds of the information. There are many of cases of of, again, of people having every bodily and soulish desires fulfilled, yet still have that emptiness, something missing that they can't figure out. Something that's missing. It's only when you deal with all three parts of a person can you have a fulfilled and completely satisfied life. It is interesting to know how the major religions of the world 
tries to deal with this question of happiness. The Mohammedans and the Hindus try to achieve this through the body, keeping your body under control, performing different rituals, attending holy places, fasting, praying in certain directions, praying five times a day, etc. All these things done in the body to achieve and fulfill and complete, have a complete life. They try to mortify the flesh to perfect the soul. The spirit, however, is never, never touched. These works of the flesh appeal to the imaginations of our soul. It appeals to the conscience of the soul. I'm doing something. It appeals to the reasoning nature of the soul. My goods will outweigh the bad. My good works will outweigh the bad. It appeals to the affections of the soul. It feels good. I feel elated. But it has no effect on the spirit and its relationship to God. The spirit of man might will his body to do these rituals. But there's still no connection with God through his spirit. As the curtain of sin separates man and his God, and his spirit is not regenerated to understand the things of God. The Buddhists and some Hindus, however, try to reach enlightenment or happiness through the soul. They try to shut down the gates and the portals of the body, controlling the gates of the soul. They try to control the imaginations of the soul by meditating on emptiness, eliminating distractions from the body. In the meditative state, they eliminate the body's distractions of sight, smell, hearing, taste and touch by going to quiet, isolated places. The meditation on the emptiness of their mind, or of, they try to empty their mind of all distractions, everything. They try to control the soul's gates of the conscience, of memory, and reasonings and affections. This meditative process of thinking on nothing and clearing one's mind does appear to have some health benefits. I suppose if you don't worry about too many things, you know, you, your, your body will feel a bit more calmer, lower heart rate and all that. But there appears to be some benefits uh, to the body. But again, there is no effect on the spirit of man and his relationship to God. The Tibetan Buddhists do not believe in a God. I had a, many years ago, when I was unsaved, I had the privilege of going through to uh, Tibet. And you go to these uh, so-called lamas who are supposed to give you some spiritual guidance. And I, I asked the question, does God exist? And they say no. So I know the Tibetan Buddhists don't believe that God exists. And I presume the other Buddhists don't, do, uh, don't believe that God exists as well. So, if there is no God, and if there's no spirit, and you, through your meditation, can control the gates of your soul and your body, then you can become a God, like Buddha, through enlightenment. You know, while I was in Tibet, I managed to see the Dalai Lama well, he wasn't in Tibet. He was in uh, Dharamsala. And he's got a little place over there. And I saw some very, very old, old uh, Tibetan woman going there. And when he's supposed to arrive, everyone's supposed to go down. 
I don't think I did that funny. But, um, but I was looking, and I saw an old, old lady look at the Dalai Lama as if he was a god in, his, in their eyes. And that's what can happen. You can see man as God. But the reality of life and the creation is that God created man in his own image. God created man as a body and a soul and a spirit. It's only when you deal with all three parts of a person can you achieve true happiness. It is only when you deal with all three parts can you have completeness and fullness in your life. So how does, how does someone do this, have a complete life? Okay. Those of you who like taking notes, eight-point plan. <laughs> okay, so... Right, it's not quite like that. The first part is that you have to be saved. You have to be born again. You need your spirit to be regenerated by God. How do you become born again, you may ask? Earlier I mentioned that our soul has a curtain, I mean, our, our, that our sin drew a curtain between God and man. We look at John 3.16, it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that so whosoever believeth on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. To be born again, you need to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God came, who came to the earth in the flesh. He was born of a virgin as a baby. He grew up and led a sinless life and went and died on the cross as a spotless Son of God. To die for all your sins and my sins, which we have committed before God. You need to believe that he was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Isaiah 53, 5. You must believe that God raised him from the dead the third day, and that he has ascended to, into heaven at the right hand of God the Father. You need to believe by faith that Jesus died for your sins and is your Lord and Savior. Romans chapter 10 verse 9 says, If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thy heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. There is no way in leading a happy, fulfilled and complete life without this first step. Once you are saved, you have access to all three parts of your being. The curtain of separation of your spirit and God has been rent apart. There's a symbol in the Bible when Christ died. The temple veil split in two from top to bottom. And your spirit will be regenerated by the Holy Spirit which dwells in your spirit. Part two, the second thing to realize is that this new birth that you have, being saved and being born again, is a spiritual experience. It is not a soul experience. It's not a, a physical experience. Because the Holy Spirit indwells you, your spirit is a new creature. You have the Spirit of God. Your body may not feel any different that you say, once you say it. Your soul might not feel all the, any different. You may still have those, those lusts in your, in, your, in your soul. But there's no difference 
of being saved. Your conscience may say to you, I've done such evil, how can I be saved? Your feelings of our soul and body continually change. And if we rely on, on, on those feelings of our bodies or our feelings of our souls, we will question our salvation all the time. You'll never have peace in your soul. Your walk with God should depend on the unchanging Word of God. The Bible says that if you receive Christ as Lord, then you would be saved. And since I have received Him as Lord, then I am saved no matter how I feel. And also no matter what you've done or do. If you think about King David, King David, everyone would agree, was a saved man. Yet, in his saved state, he committed adultery. He committed murder. And what happened? He turned and repented and went back to God, and he was still saved. He did not lose his salvation. God did not cast him off. Okay. The third point is you need to understand the threefold nature of man. We saw earlier in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23, that man consists of the body, the soul, and the spirit. Now, <clears throat> there's, a, there's, a many, there's a lot of confusion on what part of man um, gets saved when you're born again. Okay, first of all, we've, the, first, the previous point says it's not our body. When we get saved, it's definitely not our body. We know that. Later, the Bible tells us, when Christ comes again, we'll get a new body. So that will be regenerated then. And it's not our soul that gets saved. Okay. Now this sounds controversial, but please just bear with me. You'll, you'll understand in the next point. When you get saved, it's the spirit that gets saved. Turn to John chapter 3. <clears throat> John chapter 3. I'll, quantify, I'll qualify what I've been saying now. John chapter 3, verse 1. <clears throat> okay? John chapter 3, verse 1 says, And there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. For no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time uh, into the, uh, his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. And that which is born of spirit is spirit. Verse, that was verse 6. Jesus talks to Nicodemus about being born again. Verse 6 explains that which is born of spirit, capital S, look at the capital S, the Holy Spirit, is spirit. Your spirit gets saved at salvation. So you may ask, what about our soul? How, where does that fit in? Our next point, point number four. Our soul or our mind must be renewed 
When we trust in Christ as our Saviour, we become a new creature in Christ. Just turn to 2 Corinthians, uh, chapter 5. 2 Corinthians, chapter 5. 2 Corinthians, chapter 5, verse 17. And says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. We become a child of God in our spirits, in our spirit, in the inward man. But being saved does nothing to the body, nor to the soul or to the mind, soul and mind. This is where the Christian growth begins. We need to save our souls by renewing our minds. Turn to Romans chapter 12. <clears throat> Romans chapter 12. And we're looking at verse 2. Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Romans 2, 12, 2 says, And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Go back to the end of the Bible, to James. We're going to read James chapter 1 and verse 21. Okay, James chapter 1 verse 21 says, Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness, and receive meekness, the engrafted word, which is able to save your souls. You'll save your souls. God is... James is writing to who? Unbelievers? Believers. Believers. To save your souls. They were saved. As a born-again believer, you need to change your thinking from negative, ungodly, and unwholesome thinking to thinking based on the Word of God. Our soul includes our mind, our will, our emotions, and our imaginations. We need to read the Bible daily and feed on the Word and bring our wills, emotions, and imaginations in line with what the Bible says. Last point, what about the body? We're done with the spirit, we're done with the soul. What about the body? We've got to mortify the flesh. The devil deceived man in the Garden of Eden through the soul and the flesh. He continues to use those areas of attack. If he cannot attack our souls due to the renewing of our minds, he will, attack, he will attack our flesh. An example which you can read in a little bit more detail in your own time is looking at Job. The first thing he did, he attacked his flesh. Oh, sorry, he attacked uh, his flesh. Didn't he? Yeah, forget that. But just look at the example of Job, how Satan started attacking him. Okay, he attacked his soul and then he attacked his flesh. First he attacked his emotions, he destroyed his family. So his love for his, his family, his, his possessions, all those things we think about, you know, uh, that satisfy us through the soul, not our flesh. 
uh, having family, having uh, those type of possessions and all that, and, and reason and all that. Destroyed all that. And then he went and attacked the body. Right? The two parts are where Satan will attack. Paul teaches us in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27, to bring our bodies under subjection of Christ and the Bible. So we can read that. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27 says, but, keep, but, keep under my, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. So, to bring our bodies under subjection of Christ and the Bible. Romans 12, uh, 12, 12 verse 1 says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. He encourages us to present our bodies as a sacrifice to God. Romans 8, um, 13 says, uh, 8, 13 says, For if you live after the flesh, you shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. Mortifying the flesh from the Spirit. Okay, and just one more verse on this one. Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3 verse 5. Colossians chapter 3 verse 5 says, Again, mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affections, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. The Bible tells us to mortify our flesh and the deeds of the body. Once you are saved, and you start renewing your mind through reading your Bible and being obedient to His Word, you will naturally start to bring your body under subjection of Christ. Your flesh or body is mortified from the inside, from your spirit, outwards, and not the other way around. Most of the world's religions will say you can change your spirit and your soul from the outside, doing things, going inwards. But the Bible tells you that the only way that can happen is from the inside outwards. Point number six. The Bible is spiritual food. You need to realize that the Bible is spiritual food for your soul. You need to re read it daily. It will nourish your spirit and renew your soul. Just as, as you need food to live and grow, for your physical body, so you need daily reading of the Bible to grow spiritually and feed your soul. If you want to be a strong Christian, and you want to be an effective Christian for Christ, and you don't read your Bible, it will never happen. Just as an anorexic person who is weak, with skin and bones, if you only read one or two chapters a day of your Bible, You'll just be a, as, as an anorexic person spiritually. And any test or trial that, will, that you come across will overcome you. And what will you do? What, what will you do? You'll resort to your soul and to your flesh to combat it. Instead of seeking God's will and work for the, and, the, uh, and to deal with the crisis. 
Point number seven. Pray. You need to pray. You need to pray daily to communicate with God. Prayer humbles us. It humbles you before Almighty God and allows us to realize that we can do nothing without Him. No person can truly be successful without God in their lives. My, my, oh, the pastor who, who married us <laughs> in Perth um, always used to enjoy this, this, this verse here. And it's Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. It says, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not, unto thine, lean not to thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy path. God directs your path when you pray to him for guidance. And point number eight, don't ever give up if you fail. Every single one of us being saved will fall, fall short of the mark. The devil loves to point out when we have sinned uh, that because of our sin, we cannot be Christian. The greater the sin, the greater the doubt he tries to create in us. Failure in our body or soul does not eliminate the indwelling Holy Spirit that is in your spirit, in a believer. You cannot lose your salvation because the Holy Spirit indwells in your spirit. And this is where sometimes people get it all mixed up, where they start trying thinking about their soul and the flesh, that they can lose their salvation in something that they've done. But the Holy Spirit indwells you in your spirit. It's been renewed. It's a new creature. It doesn't matter what happens on the outside. The center cannot change. 1 John 1 9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. As a Christian, if you do sin, repent. Confess your sin. Ask for forgiveness. God will forgive you. He says so in his word. And then carry on the good fight. In this sermon, I've given you eight points on how to live a completely fulfilled and happy life. One, you need to be saved, born again. Two, being born again is a spiritual experience, not a physical experience. Three, you need to understand the threefold nature of man, being a spirit, soul, and a body. Four, your soul, your mind, needs to be renewed daily. Five, your flesh or body needs to be subject to God through the Word. Six, you need daily spiritual food, which is reading the Bible. Seven, you need to take time to pray and communicate with God. Eight, don't give up when you fail. Ask God for forgiveness, and He will forgive you and continue the good fight. To lead a truly happy life, you need to follow these points. How else could Paul and Silas, after being whipped and with many stripes and cast into prison, be singing praises to God that same night in Acts chapter 16? How could they do that? They were physically bound. Their bodies were in physical pain. I'm sure their soul was full of emotions of where there could be conflict in their minds, reasoning, how can this all happen? But the soul, they're the spirit. They had the spirit of God in them. And that was a difference. 
They had, they had gone through all these things. They were born again. They understood it was a spiritual thing. They understood the threefold nature of man. They, they, their soul and their spirit, so their body was renewed daily. They brought it under subjection. That's how they did it. If you are an unbeliever here today, someone who doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, what hinders you from having a truly and happy and fulfilling, complete life? What hinders you? You know what it is? It's your will. It's your free will that God has given to each and every one of us. Your free will is a gatekeeper to your spirit. Your free will will determine if you can be truly happy. Your free will will determine if you will be saved or not. Your free will will either accept the gospel message that Christ died for you or reject that message. Your free will will decide if you choose to accept Christ as your Savior and go to heaven or reject Christ and go to hell. As a Christian, I would encourage you to submit your free will to Christ today and enjoy that regeneration of your spirit. Only then can you have true happiness. Only then can you have a fulfilled and complete life. Christian, Believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. You have access to all three parts of your being. You have the indwelling Holy Spirit to complete you. So the question is, what hinders you from becoming happy, successful, complete human being? It's again, your self-will. Your self-will yield, if your self-will yielded to the Word of God and you accepted Christ as your Savior, becoming saved, Becoming saved does not remove your self-will. You still have that will there. The more you yield yourself to God, the more Christ-like you become. The, the more Christ-like you become, the happier and more complete you become. Last bit of scripture today. Matthew chapter... Uh, well, second last. Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26 and verse Matthew chapter 26 verse 39 26 39 it says here this is Jesus um, uh, praying in the garden of Gethsemane, Gethsemane and he said and he went a little further and fell upon his face and prayed saying O oh, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but thou wilt. And then just turn over, probably the last scripture for today. Um, Mark chapter 14. Mark 14 verse 36. And we'll read the same, same thing about it. Again, this is the same scene. Told by Mark. And he said, Abba Father, all things are possible unto thee. Take away this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what thou wilt. Jesus here submitted his will to God. 
And that is what, as Christians, we should do. We should submit our will to God, and then we become more Christ-like. God exalted Christ, his name higher than everything on the earth, because of his submission to him. When we submit our will to God, then God changes us from his Holy Spirit by renewing our soul. And when we bring our body in line with God's will, and, and we'll bring our body in line with God's will, a Christian who does not submit his will to God becomes like the unsaved and relies on his soul and his body. But God still loves that Christian, that little child of his, and he will chastise him to bring them back. When we confess and repent our sin, uh, of our sins, our self-will yields again to God, and we are again under the will of God. I have a quick analogy which I want to just end with. A human being can be likened, this is an analogy, to a three-cylinder car. An unsafe person will be trying to run on two cylinders. One maybe this, once the spark plug's gone. But a safe person who's not yielding to God's will is running on three cylinders but might have bad petrol with some water in it. So it has misfires, it goes slower. Uh, there was a, something on TV I watched about them using ethanol and they had different strengths of ethanol to run a car and they started with um, 98% and they went down to 85 and all that. At 85, uh, 85% the car didn't run at all. And then at the middle, uh, the middle ground, it was little but it was going but it was very slow, it had no power. But when they was running on pure ethanol, it ran fine. And a saved person is a person who, a saved person yielding to Christ is like someone running a three, uh, on premium fuel. And everything runs smoothly. Everything goes well. I would encourage you today to, to think on, on, your, on your life as a believer or unbeliever and think, you know, what do you have that happiness that that is uh, written in the Word of God, that Paul and Silas and them have. As a believer, you know the way. Yield to Christ, read the Word. If an unbeliever, you need to be born again. Without that, you can never have a happy and completely successful life. Amen.